Thank you for checking out the Mercy Hill Church Sermon Podcast. If you would like to know more about Mercy Hill, you can visit us on the web at mercyhill.cc. Well, good morning. We've been studying in Scripture Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. It's Matthew chapters 5 through 7. And it's such a kingdom manifesto of, of how heaven comes to earth when we pray, Lord, your kingdom come, let your will be done. But we're left wondering, what does it look like? And Jesus articulates for us through these chapters how you and I can live as people of the kingdom, how we do it together, and, and how our lifestyles represent what it looks like to live in relationship with God, having him be first in everything so that we're not just living for him, but living with him and in Christ in all that we do. And for those of you who are visiting this morning, this morning is week number three of four, where we're focusing on wealth, worry, and the kingdom. Weeks number one and two were rooted in Matthew chapter six. We did verses 19 through 24 two weeks ago. Luke led us through verses 25 through 34 last week. And we've learned that Jesus taught us, he urged us to store up treasures for ourselves in heaven where moth and rust don't destroy and thieves don't break in and steal. But no one of us, it's impossible for any of us to serve both God and money. No man can serve two masters, either will love the one and despise the other or hate the one and be devoted to the other. And Jesus used that same contrast of not being able to serve two masters to talk about worry. And he challenged us, he urges us to say, so seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness instead of rushing around chasing after all these other things. And Luke showed us last week that worry is a symptom of serving king money instead of seeking the kingdom. And so this morning, we're going to take a look at how the Apostle Paul continues Jesus' teaching as he instructs Timothy how to teach in the churches. So it becomes very practical for you and I when Paul writes to Timothy. Because Paul tells Timothy, one, how how do you teach believers how to actually store up treasure in heaven? It's a good question. We want to look at that this morning. How do you and I actually store up treasure in heaven? In addition, Paul gives very real cautions about the lure of king money. And he shows us how important it is, how vital it is for you and I to have a glorious vision of a great God together. So we're going to look in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 6 through 19. And as you flip there, I'd also just like to pray and ask the Lord's help for us. God, would you give us a deep and fresh revelation today? God, as we go through your word, would your word go through us and plant seeds that are going to bear good fruit? God, change us. Change the way we think. Change what we love. Change what we want. Change how we live, please, in Jesus' name. Amen. So in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 6, Paul says, But godliness with contentment is great gain, for we brought nothing into this world and we can take nothing out of it. But if we have food and clothing, we will be content with that. Verse 9, he continues. He says, people who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge men into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. 
Some people eager for money have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. Now, I'm sorry, Deb, I'm going to ask us to scoot back a bit to that slide that nobody can read. It's a table with three columns. I know it's to the prints too small for anybody to read, but I've set this up here as a visual aid to show you there's three sections in this passage. That as Luke's talking, sorry, as Paul's talking to Timothy, there's three main zones, verses 6 through 10, verses 11 through 16, and verses 17 through 19. We're going to look at them in sequence. So this is up here to just show you an architecture, a structure for the passage. If you're sitting in the front row, you might be able to read it. But I've also discovered that I, I found the limit of the margins for our projector in the screen, haven't I? Uh, and so we're first looking at this first column. It's verses 6 through 10, which we just read out loud. So thanks, Deb. Let's scoot back on through those. And what did you hear here in verses 6 through 10? Would you agree it's a strong warning from Paul about money? It's a pretty strong warning, right? He, he challenges us that when we seek financial riches, we are rushing headlong into danger. And... And I'd like to just invite you with me into one of the ways that I break down and study a passage like this, because my hope for you is that you don't just read your Bible, but that you study it. And that when you start to inter, when you read a passage, you start to interact with it. And sometimes it's really helpful to try to diagram it out. And I don't mean by diagramming it like that thing you did in middle school or elementary school with sentences where you're doing grammar sort of thing. It's not the grammar that I'm getting at. It's following the flow of God's idea as he speaks. And so uh, here in verse 9, for example, Paul talks about a category of people. And what's that category of people? People who want to get rich. And and what he goes on to say, it's kind of like a flow chart. And so when I was studying this, I just started to break it down to say, okay, so what's Paul saying is happening? Because in this verse, he gives a cause and effect relationship. He says, here's a category of people to whom certain things seem to inevitably happen. So he starts with this, people who want to get rich, people who desire to get rich. And then he says, these are the things that happen to those people. So what, number one, uh, I found another margin limit, right? Temptatio N. What's that word? Yeah, it says people who want to get rich fall into temptation. It's an interesting cause and effect, right? Because their goal was not to land in temptation. What was their goal? The goal was to get rich, but there's a side effect. There's an unintended outcome. There's people who desire to get rich, but what actually happens is they trip. They fall. They fall into what? Is that all there is? No. Paul says they not only fall into temptation, but they also fall into a a trap. He says they fall into temptation and a trap. That doesn't sound very good. Because we think if, if we get rich, we're going to find what? Freedom, not a trap. But Paul says there's something deceptive that goes on under the surface. And when we desire to get rich, we fall into both temptation and we fall into a trap. And, but wait, there's more, right? Because Paul continues. He says they also fall into 
foolish and harmful desires. Notice that the desires aren't just foolish, they're actually harmful. They cause harm. And there's not just one set of foolish and harmful desires. He says many foolish and harmful desires. So I put a bunch of those on my on my chart because it helped me when I'm studying this. I said, I, I want this to sink in. So I drew myself a bunch of little foolish and harmful desire symbols, right? But desires have consequences. Do not be deceived into thinking your desires don't matter. This has been a theme throughout the Sermon on the Mount. Remember back in in Matthew chapter 5, where Jesus taught us that if we look at a person with lust, we're actually committing adultery with them. Desires have consequences, and it's true when it comes to desires for wealth, just as it is for sexual lust. Desires have consequences, and in this case, those desires, they function like a hidden trapdoor that drops the bottom out from underneath us so that what happens? Paul's language is we plunge into ruin and destruction. And that dunk tank is a cold wake-up call. They plunge into ruin and destruction. You know, in the next verse, verse 10, Paul talks about another category of people. And this time he says some people. Okay, so there's some people. And this group of some people, maybe it's not everybody, but there's some people for whom this happens. And this group of people, he says, these some people, they, they've, they've wandered. They've wandered from the faith. And they've ended up, well, they don't know where they've ended up. They've wandered somewhere. Uh, that's not a, a diagram of the endoplasmic reticulum. That's just me trying to show wandering. Here. You know, and you can doodle when you're taking notes and you're studying your Bible. If you like to doodle, you can doodle your way through. But they've wandered from the faith, Paul says. And the result of that, the consequence that's there, is they've been pierced with grief. In fact, he says many griefs. So I went ahead and did many again. Pierced with many griefs. So I want to know if that's what happens to this group of people that Paul calls some people. I want to know, what's the characteristic of those people? What do they have in common? And Paul says, these are some people who are what? They're people who are, next slide. The category of people he's talking about are the same ones who desire to become rich, who are eager for money. This is a challenging warning. And it's very easy for us to think that we ourselves are the exception. Because we say to ourselves how good our motives are. We we say to ourselves that this won't happen to me because. And we fill in the blank after our because. Because really, the reason I want the money is for good purposes. I'll do great things for God if I have more money. I'll have more time. to. We'll be able to send people on mission. We'll be able to give. We'll be able to do this. We convince ourselves that because we think our motives are good that we won't run into the dangers. But, you know, side effects don't pay attention to motives. They pay attention to actions, right? And so Paul's warning is something that you and I have to hear. If we're going to be faithful, if we think that God's really speaking in his word, then let it sink in. Let's hear it. It's a strong warning to us. And brothers and sisters, it especially matters to us here because the church in the United States is in bed with king money. 
We rage against certain kinds of immorality and there's certain kinds of sins that are on our bad list. But we willfully disregard Jesus's teachings, Paul's teachings about the dangers of serving money instead of serving God. And if you and I, if we're going to be faithful witnesses to God's kingdom, if we're going to live the life that God's given us now in a way that pleases heaven and stores up treasure there, we need to dethrone king money in our lives so that Jesus instead is Lord in our hearts, our lives and our pocketbooks. And that's why these next verses are so important to us. Uh, the table here, again, that you can't read. Remember I said there's three sections. The first one is Paul's warnings. The second one is all about the centrality of Jesus Christ and pursuing him. And then in the third section that we're going to get to, he comes back to money and he's making application with very direct and positive urgings for us. And Jesus must be in the center of our lives and in our thinking about money. Here's what Paul says, right? He just came out of verse 10, right? Warning us that some people eager for money have wandered away from the faith and have pierced themselves with many griefs. And he starts now, verse 11, he says this, but you, man of God, flee from all this. There is a different way to live. There's a better way to live. There is a life that is truly life that God has for us. And the way to get there is to turn our back on the love of money and rush instead after this. But you, man of God, flee from all this and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, endurance and gentleness of all things. And and guys, let me just recommend men memorize these six things. Take time this week. Commit it to memory. What are my goals in life? What am I going to pursue? Well, you man of God, flee from all this and instead pursue these things. Pursue righteousness. Pursue godliness. Pursue faith. Pursue love. Pursue endurance. And yes, pursue gentleness. Genuine man of godness. Manliness of God. Man of godliness is gentleness as well. Pursue these things. And now listen to Paul continue. He's not changing his tune. He's just reiterating it again. Fight the good fight of the faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called when you made your good confession in the presence of many witnesses. He's not done yet. In the sight of God who gives life to everything and of Jesus Christ, sorry, Christ Jesus who while testifying before Pontius Pilate made the good confession, I charge you to keep this command without spot or blame until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which God will bring about in his own time. Is Paul serious? I mean, do you you feel the weight of how he's speaking to Timothy? It's weighty because of the degree of the danger of the love of money that he's talking about. He's saying, run for your life. But run in a particular direction. Run in your calling. Run to the Lord. And he's charging and he's emphasizing with no apology and with every dial, every way you can dial up the amplifier because the, the weight of the words that he's 
that he's using, but you man of God, I charge you in the sight of God and of Christ Jesus, keep this command. It tells us something. This this business about money, it's not a peripheral add-on to our faith. This is the center part of the battle of faith. This is vital to us living our lives for Christ. It's vital. That's why he's saying, fight the good fight of the faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called when you made your good confession in the presence of many witnesses. And so he continues and he says, in the sight of God who gives life to everything and of Jesus Christ who while testifying before Pontius Pilate, yeah, he did it right, Timothy. He made the good confession. I charge you to keep this command without spot or blame until, until what? Until the appearing of Jesus Christ. There is an until. Our lives are being lived in light of Jesus coming back. And he says, which God will bring about in his own time. And then Paul says this. He says, do you know who we're talking about, Timothy? Do you know who this is when I say that God will bring it about in his own time? I'm talking about God, the blessed and only ruler, the king of kings and the Lord of lords, who alone is immortal and who lives in unapproachable light, whom no one has seen or can see. To him be power and might forever. Amen. Do you know who we're talking about? Have you seen who he is? What does King Money have that can compare to this? We're talking about the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. Talking about God, the blessed and only ruler. The one who actually is immortal. Who transcends beginning and end. Whom no one can see or has him because he lives in unapproachable light. That's the one I'm talking about, Timothy. What's money got to offer in comparison to him? This money that you can't even take with you when you go. No, fight the good fight of the faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called when you made your good confession in the presence of many witnesses. But you, man of God, flee from all this. There is something worth pursuing. Fight the good fight of the faith. Take hold of the eternal life. Brothers and sisters, that's, those aren't two separate ideas. Fighting the good fight of the faith is taking hold of eternal life. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called. The fighting the good fight of the faith, it's the battle to take hold of eternal life. Eternal life is not this commodity that we're passively waiting to inherit someday when we die. It is the very thing we are fighting for day by day by faith. It's the life that's truly life that God has for us. And it's the alternative to pursuing money. There's two ways to live. Eager to get rich or fighting the good fight to take hold of the eternal life that we're called for. It's like what Luke showed us last week, right? To seek first the kingdom of God instead of seeking after everything else. No, eternal life is something that you and I take hold of here and now in this life. Or else we don't.
It's the quality of the life that we live in the body as we live by faith in the Son of God who died and gave himself for us. But we can only take hold of the eternal life that we're called to when we're pursuing righteousness, godliness, faith, love, endurance, and gentleness instead of pursuing money. And that's why Paul uses such strong language here. In the sight of God who gives life to everything and of Jesus Christ who made the good confession, I charge you to keep this command, this command without spot or blame until the appearing of the Lord Jesus Christ. The strong language is warranted because the battle is intense. The battle is real. This battle of pursuing God instead of pursuing money, it's central to what our faith is really about. And brothers and sisters, our lives are at stake in this battle. It's about whether we really believe God is who he really is. That's the fight of faith. Do you know, do you know who he is? Do you, do you know him the way Paul's describing him here? Fight for this. Fight for a revelation, a realization that God is the blessed and only ruler. That there is no other ruler in charge of your life. It's not your paycheck. It's not your mortgage. It's not the diagnosis you get from a doctor. There's one and only one ruler over the world and over our lives. God, the blessed and only ruler. He's the king of kings. He's the Lord of lords. Do you know him? Do you know him this way? He's not an accessory to worship on a Sunday morning or for a half hour a day in your own Bible study while you then go about pursuing the money that you think is going to give your life what you need. Christ is our life. He is the blessed and only ruler. He's the king of kings. He's the Lord of lords. He's the one, the only one immortal. From him, all life comes. He lives in unapproachable light where nobody can sneak a glimpse or take a peek at him. But he's graciously revealed himself to us in the person of our Lord Jesus Christ, who is coming again at God's appointed time. And so we live for him and we pursue him. And he's the one who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. That's why the battle about money is really the battle of faith. Because the riches of this world, come on, how are they going to compare to God, the blessed and only ruler, the King of kings and the Lord of lords? The one from whom all life comes? Yeah, yeah, money doesn't have a lot to offer in comparison to him. It's no wonder in a couple verses later, we're about to read it. Paul describes wealth as so uncertain, but describes God as the one who generously provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Brothers and sisters, we've been sold a lie if we think that trusting in wealth is better than trusting in God. So let, let's recognize this. You and I, we need a glorious vision of a great God. We need a great vision of a glorious God. Brothers and sisters, the fight for faith, keep him in front of your eyes. The eye is the lamp of the body. If your eye is good, your whole body will be full of light. If your eye is full of darkness, how great is that darkness? Keep your eyes fixed on this great and glorious God. And that's why in this passage where Paul is teaching Timothy and he's urging him, it is richly saturated with the centrality of the worth of Jesus Christ. Do you see that? Paul is not going off on a rabbit trail here. He is giving us the central revelation that you and I need to dethrone King Money and to live in the goodness of the Lord in our lives now, right? That's why Paul is 
goes off of about who God really is in the middle of first warning Timothy about the dangers of money and then giving him the positive instruction about how to live. It's because this, what you and I really need, it's not a better budget. It's a better revelation of a glorious God. What you and I really need is not a new or better financial plan. It's a better knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. Please, I want to urge you, don't be a recreational Christian. Following Jesus is not a hobby. It's our life. And Paul isn't finished. Remember, you you all caught his amen at the end. Did you catch his amen at the end? Right? Because he goes off with this benedictory language and he's just exalting. He is reveling in the goodness and the glory of this great God. And so he says, to him be honor and might forever. Amen. And he's not done. The amen is not the conclusion. It's his affirmation that leads into his application. It's when we say, yes, that's right. Yes, that's true. When we amen this understanding of who God is, the blessed and only ruler, the king of kings, the Lord of lords. Amen. Glory to him. Now we're ready to have a fresh relationship with money. And so Paul continues, right, in verse 7. Oh, next, let's take a peek at the table again, right? So we're hitting the third column now. Hitting the third column here, section verses 17 through 19, where Paul then continues and he says this, command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so what? So uncertain. Hmm. But instead to do what? To put their hope in God, and just like he has a qualifier about wealth, what was his qualifier about wealth? It's uncertain. He's got something to say about God. But put their hope in God, who? I love it that that's bigger. It's richer, isn't it? There's more there. It's better. Wealth, uncertain. God richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. And then he continues, command them to three things. Do good. Be rich in good deeds. Ooh. Oh, dear. I dropped out one of those when I typed it up. Well, that's proof you can tell I don't copy and paste. Um, for me, that's one of the ways I internalize the scripture. I find writing it helps it sink in for me. So take a look at your app. It says to do good, to be rich in good deeds, and to be generous and willing to share. In this way, they will store up treasure for themselves. They'll lay up treasure for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age. So they may take hold of the life that's truly life. Now, do you see all of a sudden the tone and the perspective about money, about wealth, it's transformed. It's been changed. And here's why. Verses 6 through 10 warn us of the dangers of money because money is a terrible master. It's a false God. Money is intended by God, as we saw this a couple weeks ago, to be a blessing and a good servant. So when money is the master, you have verses 6 through 10. Pierced with many griefs, ruin and destruction, all kinds of evil. But when Jesus is enthroned and money can find its rightful place as a servant, now 
it's transformed. And we find in these commands in verses 17 through 19, there is hope, there is grace, and there is life. And so here's the critical step. Paul's commands. These are the distinctives that have to characterize our relationship with money. First of all, he says, command them. Oh, it says rich in this present world. Please recognize when Paul talks about this present world, it's a reminder. This is not the only world there is. All the stuff that we see and we possess and that we chase and we order online or buy from a store or try to get or build for us. It's not all there is. This present world is just the shadow and the flicker of what is to come. There is much more to come. And he says, okay, if you've got something in this present world, command them, do not be arrogant. Don't be arrogant. Meaning, don't say to yourself, okay, because I have this in the bank, I've got life under control. Because I've got this in the bank, then I've got the years ahead already taken care of and planned out. I have what I need. Look how well I've done. I've worked hard. Look, I've been frugal. I've made good choices. No, don't be arrogant, God says. He says, be be, be wary. That's the word. Be wary of the temptation to start thinking you don't need the Lord. Don't be arrogant. And with that, he says, command them not to put their hope in wealth. Don't put your hope in wealth. Instead, do what? Put your hope in God. So, uh, it's a choice. We've got an option, right? Your hope, apparently, is a thing you can put somewhere. And so we're choosing by faith where are we going to play, actually put our hope. I don't have two things high enough, and I'm not going to inflict it on volunteers. But just real quick, take a look here. I've got a green bucket. That's our Menards bucket. We bought it. Uh, we got it. We use it for vomit when somebody's sick at home. Uh, so I thought it'd be fitting uh, to use that one to symbolize putting our hope in wealth. Uh, and then over here, uh, it's just another clean bucket. Uh, but the point is, Paul says, you and I, we're choosing to put our hope somewhere. Implicit in the command to not put our hope here, but instead to put our hope here, says that you and I have a choice to make. There's something that we actively or passively do day after day. And so, brothers and sisters, I charge you before God and the Lord Jesus Christ, don't put your hope in the vomit bucket. Don't put your hope in money. Put your hope in God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. And you might find it helpful to like find a physical representation. Because otherwise we think of hope as this very abstract thing. Well, what's hope? It's my confidence about my future. You know, and where is that? I mean, is that my ability to get places? Oh, I took my cell phone out. Is it my relationships, my ability to communicate with people? Where am I going to put that? Am I putting it in money? Or am I going to put it in the one who's provided everything that I have? The, the choice is simple, Paul says. Don't put your trust in wealth. Put your trust in the one who provides. It's a pretty straightforward choice. Don't put your trust in the limited amount that you have. 
Put your trust in God, the blessed and only ruler, the king of kings and the Lord of lords, who alone is immortal and who lives in unapproachable light, whom no one has seen or can see. To him be honor and might forever. Amen. So that's who he is. Do you know what he's like? Paul does. Paul says this is what he's like. He richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. And just as Luke shared with us last week, that's part of the battle of faith right there. Is will I trust that he is generous? That his relationship with me is a good father giving abundantly what I genuinely actually need and indeed for my enjoyment. Not just the bare essentials of food and clothing, but that life that is truly life will be found in a trust-filled relationship with this good father. The battle for faith is a fight to trust that God really does have our good in mind and that when we trust and obey him, we're going to be more blessed than if we try to follow the promises of King Money and the lies that he tells us, right? Because he'll tell us that if we just protect and preserve our own little kingdom or believe the lie that our joy will be found in things instead of God himself, that we'll be better off than if we live radically for Jesus. Now, Paul's also showing us here what this looks like in practice. His first set of command thems, right? It's a trio again. It's command them not to be arrogant, command them not to put their hope in wealth, but command them to put their hope in God. That's the first three. Well, great. What's that look like, Paul? How do we actually do that? Well, he continues. He's got a second triad here where he says to Timothy, command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, and to be generous and willing to share. And apparently to Paul, that's the practical outworking of what it looks like to put our hope in God instead of putting our hope in money, right? And so do good, be rich in good deeds, and be generous and willing to share. Well, Paul, again, shows us that there's an outcome here. What's the outcome? In this way, they will store up treasures for whom? For themselves. Direct correlation there. Treasures for themselves that will be what? A firm foundation, not for this present life, but for the coming age, so that we can do what? Take hold of the life that's really life. It's funny how a firm foundation for the coming age transforms our life in this present life. Amen? And so let's just look through again how Paul describes this process working. Next slide. So you are here, right? We've each got something. Most of us wish we had more than we have. Some of us have more than others. But each of us, we're like at a spot on a map in our life. And here we are. We've got certain resources that God's entrusted to us. And we all start there with this in common. That each one of us also has choices to make about how we're going to live, what we're going to trust, how we're going to use the money, the resources that God's entrusted to us. And so one of the choices that Paul presents to us is we can follow the trend and pull of our culture, which would be to say, let's get more now. That the life 
that we believe is truly life will be shaped by what I can get here and now. And so through spending, I will find greater joy. And I'm going to fuel my lifestyle by borrowing because my spending will exceed the resources that I have. And so I'll end up in a debt-fueled lifestyle, but it feels like a higher level than where I am before. But that's not what Paul's urging Timothy to teach us, is it? No, instead, Paul's glorious vision of a great God invites us to dethrone king money and to live in a different direction. To instead, to do good, to be rich in good deeds, to be generous and willing to share, and to choose voluntarily to live a lifestyle that is seemingly at a lower level than what our resources would permit us to spend on so that we can give more generously. And when we live like this in a generosity-driven lifestyle, Paul says, well, that's laying up a foundation for the coming age. Next slide. And so up here, there's treasure for ourselves. That's a firm foundation for the coming age. Who wants to have that? I do. Right? Wealth is so uncertain The contrast is a firm foundation for the coming age. But how do I get there from here? Well, Paul shows there's one way to get there. He says, in this way, verse 18. No, sorry, verse 19. In this way. Next slide. Thanks, Deb. In this way. Which way? By generosity. By letting go instead of holding tight by being rich in good deeds, by being generous, we position ourselves, oh, suddenly we're laying up treasure in heaven for ourselves. We're laying up treasure as a firm foundation for a coming age. But watch out for this deception. There's only one of these two lifestyles that gets us that gold. You can't, next slide, you can't get there from spending on yourself. You can't get there. Paul says, in this way, they lay up treasure for yourself. Listen, you can't get there from spending because the dollar has no value in the coming age. It's like any kind of uh, what we'd consider foreign currency in the United States, right? You can't spend it here if it's not the valid currency Of this kingdom, this place. So, for example, this is a, a Reserve Bank of Zimbabwe note. You guys are the front row. What's it? How much is it worth? Twenty billion. Twenty billion what? Dollars. Twenty billion dollars. Yeah, I'm feeling pretty good. <laughs> That's right. Um, do you know what this is worth in actual worthness? I mean, it says $20 billion on it, and it's an official, legitimate Zimbabwean government banknote. $20 billion. Do you know what you can get for that here in the U.S.? Nope, less than that. It's worthless. Worthless. This currency collapsed in 2009. And its only value is as a souvenir. It collapsed. Zimbabwean dollars are off the world market. You can't exchange this at any bank. You can't get anything worth anything from this. 
Brothers and sisters, there is a coming age coming. And the dollar will no longer be convertible into any treasure. We have one opportunity in this life to lay up treasure in heaven. And the dollar isn't going to buy anything. It's not going to buy a bottle of Coke. It's worth nothing in the coming age. So Paul says, there's one way to get treasure for yourself there. And it's not by hoarding currency or the size of our bank accounts. It's by what we have given, sent ahead because we can't take it with us. And so this challenge, this issue here is vital for us. It matters for our lives forever what we do with our money here and now. And notice throughout this passage, Paul isn't asking for any money for himself. His passion and his concern, my passion and my concern for you today is your good. What's at issue here is not churches trying to get more money for themselves. It's you dethroning king money so that Jesus can reign supreme and you can take hold of the life that is truly life. I want to urge you and encourage you that nothing we give to the Lord is ever wasted. It's where moth and rust don't destroy, where the economy cannot tank, heaven's stock market never collapses. There's no thief that can break in and steal. When we spend, the money's gone. When we give, it's treasured up. It's stored up and never wasted. And so, Mercy Hill, do good. Be rich in good deeds. Be generous and willing to share. Lay up treasure for yourself in heaven as a firm foundation for coming age and thereby fight the good fight of the faith today. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called. When God, when you made your good confession in the presence of many witnesses that Jesus Christ is Lord, you can't separate the good fight of the faith from your financial giving. The common reference that Paul uses here is to take hold of the eternal life, take hold of the eternal life. So to fight the fight of the faith, it's going to require faith and a plan. Some actual consistency, consistent contributions where you're living your life and saying, I'm going to put my hope in God. I'm going to put my hope in God. I'm going to put my hope in God day after day, week after week, month after month. I'm going to put my hope in God. I'm going to put my hope in God. You're laying up a foundation. Notice Paul's language. It's progressive. It's consistent. It's not, don't wait. Don't wait for that point in your future where you say to yourself that now after I've finished putting in here and here, then I'll have enough and I'll be able to somehow shake this all out over here. No, no, no. Start consistently. Say, I'm going to trust in God. I'm going to trust in God. I'm going to trust in God. Consistent contributions build a consistent lifestyle of trusting God. I better be done. Jason, over to you.